0: Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatch, and you are tuned into the Double-Aged Sword Program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg, Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and Where It All Began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the double Edge Sword Program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And we're glad to have you join us for another installment of the Double edged Sword Program. We are definitely cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. That's what we try to do here on this show, and um, on the uh, through the, the glorious gift of Catholic radio. And um, today, what I want to talk about is uh, it was sort of a an insight that I stole from the great G.K. Chesterton, and um, he he has put it in one of his, his essays. He talked about how the good, just you know, goodness itself naturally tends towards or gets drawn into or gravitates towards the incarnate, okay? So the good gravitating towards the incarnate. Now, um, before we really go much further, maybe we should make sure we're clear about our words here, you know, what we're talking about. Because see, we're, 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 you know, there, there's goodness, there's, there's the good itself, which is, of course, God himself is good. God is good, um, but there are other things that, that participate in the goodness of God. And so, you know, um, marriage and family life is good, but it's good only that it participates in the goodness that is God. An afternoon playing golf or an afternoon hanging out at the lake is good, but it's only good to the extent that it participates in the goodness of God. You know, any, anything that is good can, can also be contaminated by evil, you know, when people do things that are bad, but, um, but we, we want to understand what goodness is, you know, and here we're talking about goodness being God himself and everything else kind of being a participation in that. Then when we talk about incarnate or incarnation, um, you know, when I was a little kid, you know, you go to church and, you know, I went to mass as a little kid and we went to Catholic schools when we were little kids and you'd hear in church, you know, this churchy language about the incarnation, incarnation. And I knew about carnation evaporated milk and I knew about carnation flowers and things like that. I'm going, why is the church so, you know, infatuated with carnations, you know? Well, obviously I was wrong because the term incarnation, carn, C-A-R-N, comes from Latin carno, um, which means meat, means flesh, okay? And so um, whenever we talk about the incarnation, you know, maybe it's it's kind of a crude way of putting it, but it might kind of drive the point home a little bit better. We talk about the enmitification. you know, that when we talk about the incarnation of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, Jesus Christ, we celebrate the Feast of the Incarnation on December the 25th, some people call it Christmas, and so that we, we might talk about the inmitification of Jesus, you know, God who is pure spirit takes on meat, you know, takes on flesh, takes on a human form. And so when we talk about then we talk about the good naturally gravitates towards the incarnate goodness, tra- you know, gravitates towards inmitification, as it were. All right, and so the um there's a number of things that that, that you know will kind of back this up. And, um, and so we, we, we have, we'll have what, what we call the, the positive, but there's also the converse, the negative, and we'll look at that as well. And so first of all, when we talk about you know the positive part you know, that shows that it's true, well, the, the, the greatest evidence, the greatest proof that this is true is when the second person of the Trinity, who is God – decides to emitify himself decides to become incarnate you know for the good of our salvation he takes on a human form he's born um, from the womb of the blessed virgin mary becomes a human being dies for our sins rises from the dead you know this is all christianity you know 101 we should this all used to be part of our dna by now we all know this and so we see then that god who is goodness itself who is nothing but good then gravitates towards the incarnate you know he becomes incarnate becomes one of us and so um, you know, that's kind of the first and the greatest proof. The next greatest positive proof is that of marriage and family, that you have the, the man and woman at first just being man and woman, but then the man notices the woman, the woman notices the man, and they decide they like each other, and they start hanging out with each other, and they fall in love with each other, and then they get married. I'm talking about the ideal here because everybody screws it up these days for the most part. But um, when we look at the ideal of a man and a woman then falling in love and the man proposes marriage, the woman accepts the proposal of marriage and they get married. And then on their wedding night or sometime soon thereafter, um, they consummate the marriage by making love to each other for the first time. And they would be each other's first and only you know, sexual partners. At least that's the ideal. Again, in our day and age, that usually isn't the case. But we have to know what the ideal is so we kind of know what to shoot for and then sometime after that then the children start becoming conceived well you know there you have the good you know this is a, this is not goodness itself only god is goodness itself but then a good that participates in the goodness of god is that of marriage you know of man and woman coming together in a lifelong commitment of marriage and then from their you know loving relationship then comes forth children you know again to put it crudely comes forth more meat all right and so we have, we have we have the good gravitating towards incarnation you know the the good of marriage gravitate you know there's the incarnate forms of the of the husband and wife and then there is the incarnate form of the children that come about as a result of the carnal union of the husband and wife and so again i think we see that chesterton is right on target here when he talks about about the the good Tending towards the incarnate, okay, the good, you know, gravitating towards the incarnate, and and it seems like, you know, this is just kind of a a, a natural thing of, of the way the universe is put together. Um, God seems to want it this way, you know. God is spirit. God is perfectly content, you know. Before, you know, in the days of the pre-incarnate Christ, um, in the days before the second person of the Trinity became a human being. You know, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived as spirit in eternity in heaven and were perfectly content among themselves. And so it's only kind of his act active, of active, um, the love overflowing from this community of persons that God decides to create to begin with, and so it creates the universe. And his universe rebels against him, and you know, in the Garden of Eden, and then of course, in you know, Christ comes in and re- redeems the universe and pays the price to the, for the universe's rebellion against God, and through his incarnation. So the goodness tends towards the incarnate. Later on, you know, of course, there's all kinds of places in the scriptures we can look. Um, we can look, for example, in the Gospel of St. John in what we call the, the farewell discourse, and it's at the very end of the Gospel of St. John. Whenever um, in, in John 13 through 17, those five chapters, Jesus is doing a, um, a big farewell speech to his apostles before he dies and in that farewell speech, he's mentioning over and over again, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The one who loves me is the one who keeps my commandments." And so we have this idea of love, you know. Which again, you know, how do how do we know what love is? You know, it's something we you know, we can kind of experience it, and we can you know sort of um, we can and you know as best as we can. We can try to understand it, but then, you know, love, because it is a good, um, only God himself is love itself, but since since love is a good, then it has to go incarnate somehow. And so then how does love become incarnate? Love becomes incarnate by our actions. And so Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. By loving Christ, you know, we do what he tells us to do. And so then when we see people doing good things— the things that we can see, the things that we can experience, in other words, the stuff that's incarnate, the stuff that's inmetified. We have um, we have the goodness that comes to us from good Christian people. Well, then that love—if we love Christ, we keep His commandments. If we love Christ, we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick. If we love Christ, we become peacemakers. If we love Christ, you know you know all the various things that we read about in the in the Sermon on the Mount and so on. Well, then we take those things, those words, and you know, we inflesh them. We make them real. We make them things that that people can touch and see and experience somehow. And so. When our Lord says, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and St. John must have been pay- paying very, very close attention to that at the Last Supper because later on in the first letter of John, he repeats that same idea, that um, that, that knowing Christ and keeping his commandments are, are the same thing. You know, St. John says the one who claims to know him but does not keep his word is a liar, all right? And so, you know, we see then that um, through the scriptures, we have these various um, indications of showing how how the good moves towards the incarnate. In fact, um, even in the first letter of Peter, St. Peter says, in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. In your heart, okay, in the core of your being, and where everything comes together, where our our intellect, our will, you know, our emotions, where everything comes together that makes us who we are in our core, you know, which is kind of the Latin word for heart anyway, is core. And so, in our core, in the core of our beings, then um, again, Saint Peter says, "Sanctify Christ as Lord." Well, again, that's kind of an ethereal sort of thing. It's like hanging jello on a nail. You know, how do we how do we really kind of know what that is? Well. The way that I sanctify Christ as Lord is by the way I live my life, you know, by what I do. And I'm in the context of what St. Peter says here. He says, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who demands it from you on the account of the hope that is in you, all right? And so, again, what's supposed to happen is as the good gravitate towards the incarnate, as we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, Well, if Christ is Lord, you know, I mean, again, it's one of these things that these phrases that gets used over and over again. But nobody really ever stops to kind of pick it apart to see what it means. You know, you see Jesus is Lord, you know, and, you know, you'll see a, you know, someone have a bumper sticker. Or you might see some billboard somewhere that says Jesus is Lord over Atlanta. Well, you know, or Jesus is Lord over Wichita or whatever. Well, what does that mean? mean, It means that, you know, people are saying that what they're saying is. our lord says goes in those cities obviously that's not the case but it's a nice ideal so that's why they put those things up so again this whole idea you know good gravitates towards the incarnate um i think that that's um really kind of worth looking at and you know worth kind of uh, mulling over a little bit because if the if the what we say is if the positive is true if we're going to say that well good gravitates towards the incarnate well then the the opposite the negative must also be true And so – and the negative is if good gravitates towards the incarnate, then evil does not gravitate towards the incarnate or evil gravitates towards something that is not incarnate. You know, evil would gravitate towards, you know, smoke, towards nothingness or something like that. And um, I think that that that's really um, almost as interesting and almost as worthwhile to look at and to, um, you know, kind of dig into as is the positive of good gravitating towards, towards the incarnate. And um, one of the things that, uh, that I want to look at in that regard, this is one of these things that kind of you see these things kind of pop up all the time. And this one, I went ahead and printed off. There's a little thing that come up on the internet, and um, because I've noticed, especially on the Yahoo um, website, which is virulently, venomously anti-religion, anti-Christian, certainly anti-Catholic, they you know they just you know constantly run story after story after story and opinion after opinion after opinion of people who don't believe in God. You know, if they, you know, they find someone that just, you know, if they claim to be an atheist or they don't believe in God, you know, they get second chair. But the ones that get first chair are the ones that say, well, I used to be a Christian. I used to be a Catholic. I was born and raised, you know, Christian, and now I don't believe in God anymore. Those people get run to the front of the line. And what I have here in front of me is a, is a little – it's a kind of a short little thing written by a guy named Anders Anderson in the International Business Times from Saturday, May 20th, all right, of, of 2017. And um, it's actually – it's again, it's a very short thing. But the reason why I thought it was worth bringing on the air on this installment of Double-Edged Sword – is because it really kind of summarizes what a lot of these people, you know, when, when they start blathering on, if they get on CNN or whatever, and when they blather this stuff up, they make it sound like, you know, I, I discovered something completely new. And then, you know, the, then the, the, again, you'll look at this, you know, when you hear the way the way this thing's written, um, you, know, you know, this guy thinks he's come upon something just completely new that the rest of us missed somehow. So anyway, I'll just kind of go through it, and then we'll, we'll read through it, and then we'll kind of go back and pick it apart. But it says here... It says, in my case, I researched my beliefs. Being raised a Christian, I personally dedicated my life to serve God. Now, here it's a capital G, to serve God at age 20 and was baptized to symbolize that decision. So he's probably some kind of a Protestant. Okay, old Anders Anderson here. At age 35, something triggered triggered me to actually critically review the reasons I had for my specific set of beliefs. So at 20, he was baptized, probably accepted Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior or something like that. But then at 35, he says something triggered to make him critically review the reasons I had for my set of beliefs. Well, I hope everybody does that. Everybody should critically review the reasons they have for their beliefs because, um, you know, the the reasons that we have for our beliefs um, tend to change over time. You know, as a little kid… You know, if I'm an eight year old kid and um, I say I believe in Jesus, well, it's probably because my parents told me to, and uh, my parents showed me the nativity, the nativity scene, and my parents took me to mass, and my parents, you know, we had Bible study, you know, Bible reading at home, and so on, and went to a Catholic school, whatever the case might be. But then, you know, you kind of get to you know high school years and college years and so on, and all those answers that you got as a little kid don't seem to really work anymore. Well. Big whoop de doo stop and think about it. How many answers that we get at eight years old are good enough for us at 28 or 38 or 48, okay? You know, this happens in all aspects of life. That somehow or another, we have to, you know, we do have to spend a little bit of time, you know, going back and, you know, understanding where babies come from. You know, I mean, what they tell a little four-year-old is different than what they tell a twenty-four-year-old, obviously, okay, and any number of other um, explanations. You know, how do you explain death to a to a nine-year-old as opposed to a nineteen-year-old? You know, having to face death and things like that. And so as we get older, these various things require us to revisit them and to, you know, look at them with a critical eye. And that's great stuff. I mean, that's kind of what makes people really, that's more often than not, that's what really kind of sets the faith in people's hearts and souls. And so this guy says, at 35, something triggered me to actually critically review the reasons I had for my specific set of beliefs. And he's got a set of bullet points here. The first one is, what reasons do I have to believe that any God, small g now, exists at all? Next one, what reason do I have to believe that the biblical, the biblical God, small g, Yahweh, exists? Could the same reasons be applied to support the existence of either any other entity? That is, aliens from a distant galaxy. That's always a good one. Then the next bullet point, what reasons do I have to believe the Bible has a divine source? In other words, why should I believe that the Bible is you know, divinely inspired by God? Um, next, Pete, next one, could similar reasons be applied to other so-called holy books that I do not accept as divine, such as the Quran, the Book of Mormon, etc.? Next bullet point, what scientific evidence exists to support my beliefs? And then he has a number of um, various points of um, examples here. Adam and Eve created literally 6,000 years ago. Evolution does not happen. A global flood that destroyed everything except whomever was in Noah's Ark. Last bullet point, Do I have any personal experience that shows beyond a doubt that that God, capital G now, is my friend and that he, capital H, answers my prayers one way or another? After researching all these questions in depth, I realize I have zero reasons to believe the God, now small g again, the God I worshiped actually exists. Quite the opposite, All all the evidence seems to indicate that the biblical God does not exist at all. I also researched a very much in-depth history, scandals, teachings, and practices of my brand of Christianity to see if my religion could not really be divinely appointed as one true religion. Guess what? They're not. And since I only believe in one God, the disappearance of my belief in him left me with belief in zero gods. And now in boldface type, I am now an atheist, a result of critically reviewing my own beliefs. And as far as I can tell, a very similar path that was traveled by a large number of previously religious people who are now atheists, okay? So again, this person thinks they've stumbled across, you know, stumbled, you know on, on some great wisdom here that everybody else seems to have missed, you know? And uh, my, my guess is old Anders Anderson, you know, if you were to, you know, take his little method, this path that he went through, and you go up to any other schmo on the street and say, well... You know, what reasons do you have to believe that God, that any God exists at all? What reasons do you have that the biblical God, Yahweh, exists? You know, and so on. And, you know, I think he thinks that if you ask these questions of any rational person, they will say, well, by gum, you're right. You know, well... The problem with Anders Anderson and all the other people like him is that they, they, again, they seem to think that they've stumbled upon some some missing wisdom here that the rest of us somehow or another just it got biased somehow. And so those of us then who do have faith, those who do believe in God, according to people like Anders Anderson— you know, we're simpletons, we know we we don't we don't know how to think for ourselves, we use religion as a crutch, you know, and things like that. Well, again, I, I think if we go back and we look at our example or look at our paradigm that we showed in the first part of the broadcast here of good moving towards incarnation. Well, if good moving towards incarnation is true, and I think we've shown it to be true, um, by the fact that Good God Himself became incarnate, and that in marriage and family—that's very much a, a carnal deal—by um, which you know children are brought into the world and things like that. And then you know, making making incarnate the teachings of Jesus by um, putting his words into action. If we love him, we keep his commands. Well, then the opposite must necessarily also be true. If the positive is true, the negative must also be true. And so, if the positive good tends towards incarnation. Then the the negative must also be true. Evil either does not tend towards incarnation, or evil tends towards whatever the opposite of, of incarnation is. Evil tends towards you know obliteration. Evil, evil tends towards um, being annihilated, towards annihilation, towards you know again just kind of disappearing in a puff of smoke. And um, this is what I thought, what I think is really kind of worth looking at, especially in the light of this guy. Again, I don't want to pickled on Anders Am- Anders Anderson too bad, because again, you see this stuff in the in the news all the time. And I just downloaded his and printed his off because it was, um, um, it, it was it was pretty succinct, and he just kind of hits all the same points everybody else hits. And so when you look at various things like when they want to show, when they want to throw up things like. Um, You know, why, you know, what evidence is there to support my beliefs that Adam and Eve were created literally 6,000 years ago, evolution does not happen, a global flood, and things like that? Again, one of the things that I've been very careful to point out in previous installments of Double Edged Sword, and also just in teaching and preaching and so on, do not let your opponent tell you what you believe, okay? And that's what these guys do, and they're pretty good at it, is they will come up and they say, well, you believe that Adam and Eve were created 6,000 years ago. You believe that, um, that, that evolution does not happen and so on. Well, again, I don't know who this guy's talking to, but he's not talking to the Catholic Church, all right? Because in, in Catholic biblical scholarship and so on, you know, we, we look at, the, at actually the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which include Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, and so on. And we call that prehistory, okay? And what the first 11 chapters of Genesis are trying to teach us, using a form of writing called poetic narrative, is Genesis kind of is just, you know, the, the first 11 chapters are kind of setting the stage and explaining to us how we got to where we are, all right? You know, one of the things that, that, um, that I will not um, budge one inch on is somehow or another God created the universe, whether you want to call it through the Big Bang, or you know, whatever it is you want to call it, but you, the universe had a beginning, and um, and be, before the beginning of the universe there was no universe and and before and again as we say in the in the in the prologue of the gospel of saint john in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and through him all things came into being and apart from him nothing came to be all right and so in the, you know we we know again you know, I'm I'm prepared to argue that the, the universe is created by god it's Opponents like Anders Anderson that come up and say, "Well, you believe that um, that God created the world six thousand years ago?" It's like, "Well, no, I don't. I don't believe that at all." And you know, because again, a, a um, literalist or a fundamentalist interpretation of Scripture that some fundamentalist Christians do, you know, they'll say that you know the world was created six thousand years ago and so on, and um, and they kind of have their kooky reasons for that. Um, the main reason why I think the fundamentalists want to stick to the Bible so literally. Is because um, so many other Protestant sects were saying, "Well, no, you know what's in the Bible? It's it's just metaphor. It's just taken meant to be taken symbolically, and you really can't take it literally. You can't take it seriously," and that brought all kinds of chaos and mayhem into the Protestant world. And so the fundamentalists said, "No, if the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it." And um, then of course they paint themselves into a pretty sticky corner. And so, again, stories like the, the, the Great Flood and stories like the Tower of Babel and Adam and Eve and so on, um, these stories contain deep, deep, deep profound truths about the human condition and about human nature and so on. And so, you know, we look at these things and, you know, we, we try to extract those truths out of it. You know, the Catholic Church does not deny that evolution exists. Um, evolution does happen. You can see it. And anyone that claims that it doesn't happen, it's just because either they're blind or they're just you know stubbornly um, dug into their their point of view, and they don't want to acknowledge that. But I mean, if you you know you go and you go into the etymology labs, you know where they study insects and things like that, I mean you you can see evolutionary changes just happening from generation to generation in certain kinds of bugs, and so um, to deny that evolution takes place, you just can't do that. Where the Catholic Church and where again any informed Catholic would have difficulty with evolution is, um, you know, that species and that organism's change over time is just a fact of life. You can't really get around that. But on the other hand, though, that when when this goes into the extreme of saying, well, you know, there is no God, there is no reason behind the universe. Um, everything just kind of turned out the way it did, just kind of as a, you know, a, a happy, you know, happenstance. It was just kind of sort of, you know, total coincidence that the you know the organic molecules that came together to form us did so in such a way that they made us with 10 toes and 10 fingers and two eyes and a a liver and a set of kidneys you know things like that you know that's what people will say they'll say we're just here just kind of as a happy accident of evolution and um, that's certainly not true Um, that there has to be when you when you look at something as complicated as even just one cell in our bodies to say nothing of entire systems you know how our our endocrine system and our circulatory system and our respiratory system and our digestive system and our reproductive system and nervous system, you know, the way these things work and how they all work together, um, it is just totally unreasonable to believe that that came about as just as a fluke of evolution, all right, Um, that that somehow this is just going to happen, you know, because, you know, a a zillion other attempts were made before and this one just kind of happened to stick. Um, I just don't see how any reasonable person can believe that. And so again, this person is throwing this stuff, stuff up in our face and saying, "You know, how can you possibly believe this?" Well, you know, again, in the, in the second part of the program, you know, we, we've shown how the, the 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 positive or the you know the the affirmative that good gravitates towards incarnation. We've kind of shown how that's true, and we've kind of begun. We, we've looked at it kind of just a, a laundry list of reasons here why people you know sort of think they they're kind of flocking to atheism. Um, by this guy named Anders Anderson. And again, I'm not really picking on him so much, but he did put his name to the thing that he wrote. But the thing that he wrote is not really original. I mean, there's lots of other people that have said basically the same thing. And again, I just picked this one off the internet because it happened to be the one that was on today, and and it's pretty succinct. And again, it's talking about atheism. Well, so again, in the second part of the program here, we're going to talk a little bit about the negative, how if good gravitates towards incarnation, well then evil either does not gravitate towards incarnation or evil, evil gravitates to something that is the, the, the opposite of incarnation, which would be annihilation basically. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back. And I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament. And you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg, Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend. And KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And um, we're glad to have you with us again today on this installment of Double Edged Sword. We're talking about G.K. Chesterton's um, observation that the good gravitates towards the incarnate. Okay? And, um, and if you just tuned in, you know, we'll just kind of review that just a little bit from the first part of the program. Always try to remind people that um, you can also go to our website at www.dv, that's V is in Victor, Divine Mercy, get it? www.dvmercy.com. And um, if you go down to the double-edged sword icon, um, you'll the, the, the show for the week is there, but you can also go back and look at archive shows and kind of listen to them at your own pace. And so, again, for this one, we're talking about the good gravitating towards the incarnate. And um, that's a, again an, an observation by G.K. Chesterton, and and so in the first part of the of the program, the first half of the program, um, we demonstrated how that's true, how how goodness itself, how God, who is the only thing that is good, gravitated, you know, went to the incarnate by becoming Jesus Christ, you know, the Son of God, who is God Himself, the Second Person of the Trinity, became incarnate, became enmetified, you know, He took on flesh, and so. Um, he um, and you know walked among us as a human being, and then we saw how marriage also is a, is a you know a perfect example of how the good gravitates towards the incarnate in the goods of marriage and family, and it's you know again it's a very incarnate deal. The you know the love of husband and wife and the conception and you know birth of children and so on. Um, again, this is a very good example of good being you know gravitating towards the incarnate. And then we also talked about how the Christian life, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That the good of loving Christ becomes incarnate when we do what he tells us to do. And so again, that was kind of the point that we tried to make in the first part of the program. Then for the second part of the program, here we're going to look at the negative. You know, the affirmative, the good gravitates towards the incarnate. Well, then the negative must also be true. Evil either does not gravitate towards the incarnate or evil gravitates towards something that is opposite of the incarnate. In other words, evil gravitates towards chaos, evil gravitates towards annihilation, evil gravitates towards, you know, that which is not incarnate. And so that's the part that we're gonna look at here in the second part of the program. Again, kinda of to get us ready for that, I looked at I went through a little piece that was written by Anders Anderson in the International Business Time from Saturday, May 20th, 2017. And in it, he was talking about how, as a Christian, he was looking at, um, you know, the various beliefs of of Christianity, and he came to the conclusion that he couldn't believe in, in God anymore, and that's when he became an atheist. And he says that a similar path is traveled by a large number of previously religious people who are now atheists. Well, I don't know. God love these folks. I mean, I, some, some of them end up finding their way back, and that's good for them. If not, they're dead wood. I mean, goodbye and good riddance. And um, we got enough dead wood in the Catholic Church anyway, if you want to, want to become atheists and get lost. No, no skin off my back. I'm kind of getting tired of listening to their whining all the time. But when we talk about the, um, about, about evil then, we saw how good gravitates towards incarnation. Well, then what does evil do? All right? And I think that when you, you, you can look at it, we're going to try to illustrate the negative, again, kind of in the sense of the positive. Let's look, for example, at beauty. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great one to start with, that you, you have someone that has an idea of beauty in their head. They have an idea of good, an idea of beauty. And so maybe it's Mozart, or maybe it's Bach or maybe it's Beethoven, you know, and, and when you look at the beautiful pieces of music they have written that are some of them are just, you know, and stuff like that written for the, you know, for the praise of God. Some of them are mass settings. A lot of them are mass settings. Bach and Beethoven both wrote a lot of mass settings. Uh, Mozart did, too. And there's, of course, there's Mozart's beautiful Requiem, you know, the funeral um, music that he wrote and so on. And so here you have something that's very beautiful, something that's very good swimming around in one of these guys' heads. And then what do they do? They write the, the score out on paper and then the musicians come together and they play it. And so then something that was good in somebody's head becomes incarnate in the music that's played. Okay. Or imagine something you know a thing of beauty, you know like a painting, okay, And this is all again, for kind of total transparency here, this is all coming from a guy. All I can play is a CD player, and I can barely draw stick people. Um, when it comes to musical and artistic talent, I have none, Zippo, nada. And so that's one of the reasons why I tend to admire people that do. And so I don't know if you've ever seen before, if you just kind of go on the internet and type in Rembrandt and Prodigal Son. You know, um, Rembrandt's image of the prodigal son returning, I think it's in a, in a museum in Russia somewhere, and it's giant. I think it's like a four by, eight, a four, by four by eight foot um, painting that he made. And, and you look at it. And you can just see the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the emotion of the return of the prodigal son. You know, he comes back, and his hair is all fallen out, because 'cause he's been eaten by lice. You know, his his shoes are dangling off of his feet because they're all worn out. And the father is, you know, embracing him and holding him back, and the elder brother is kind of standing in the background with his look of disgust on his face, like, you know, what's this bozo doing back? And so. You know, Rembrandt, you know, tried his best. You know, he read the story of the prodigal son in the Gospels, and then he decided, well, I'm going to I'm gonna try to summarize all. I'm going to try to capture all that and put it in a painting. He didn't capture all of it, but he sure got quite a bit of it. And when you look at that, you're just kind of going, wow, this is something else. Because, again, the good— you know the the gospel story from the gospel of saint luke and then the fertile mind and the then the talent of rembrandt and he puts this scene together and, and and then it becomes incarnate in something that's very beautiful okay now so i think you know we've all had you know we all kind of know what that means we all know, we all have an experience of what that's like when you know something good becomes incarnate in the sense of something that's beautiful whether it's beautiful music a beautiful painting a beautiful church a beautiful stained glass window you know things like that now ask yourself this question we have all kinds of examples of, you know, things of beauty that have been made basically that have been motivated by people of faith, all right? And I think that's one of the arguments you can have. You know, when, 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 when um, old Anders Anderson says, what reasons do I have to believe that any God exists at all? I think one of the arguments you can make is the argument from beauty that there is such a thing as beauty and that we believe in beauty. And when you look at the atheistic communists, they deny that beauty exists. In fact, they, 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 they intentionally, they deliberately make ugly things and call it art. And, you know, again, any reasonable person is going to look at that and go, that sure is ugly. But then, you know, you've got the atheistic communists going, oh, no, this is beautiful because we say so. And, and because, again, they're taking beauty and turning it on its head. And so, you know, the the, the main point I want to get to, and then we're going to expand on this a little bit, is look at at the things of beauty that come about because of people of faith. Okay? Look at the things of beauty that come about precisely because the person making the thing of beauty is a person of faith. And the examples are just too numerous to be counted. You know, concertos, mass settings, paintings, sculptures, you know, Michelangelo, the Sistine Chapel, on and on and on. Okay, now... How many things of beauty have come about from atheists precisely because of their atheism, okay? How many things of beauty have come about, you know, from, from atheists, from agnostics, you know, from Satanists and so on? You know, you look at these people that, that, that our contemporary culture is holding up as being, oh, these people are cutting edge. You know, they've, they've found what the rest of us have lost. They have figured out, you know, what these stupid Christians, you know, what got, got past them for all these centuries, all right? And so, again I, again, I call this the argument from beauty. And then, you know, look at, again, if goodness becomes incarnate, well, then evil, you know, the evil that's espoused by the Satanists and by the atheists and so on, um, it gravitates towards what? I would just say it gravitates kind of towards nothingness. It gravitates towards oblivion because, you know, the, there, there may be artists out there who are atheists who paint a nice bowl of fruit, You know, there may be an atheist out there that's got a tremendous amount of artistic talent and they can paint a nice landscape or a seascape or something. Or, you know, they can paint a, you know, a portrait of someone that looks like a photograph. You know, it's so good. But the thing is, you know, they can do that and they are an atheist. But does their ability to do that come because they are an atheist? Okay, does the beauty of whatever it is they make come about precisely because of their atheism? Or again, if you have someone who's a Satanist, you know that's kind of what Chesterton talks about as a Satanist. You know, if you have someone who's a Satanist, and um, and maybe this person again, if it, you know Satanists are just kind of messed up people, you know, but just because someone's messed up doesn't mean they have no talent. And so you may have someone who's a Satanist who can, you know, maybe they can carve sculptures, or maybe they can paint, or maybe they can make music or whatever, you know. But the thing of it is, I have yet to see, you know, a piece of architecture a piece of, of, of art. I've yet to hear music. I've yet to read poetry. Not that I'm much into poetry, but you know, it's out there. And that that is written or that is, that is created or that is that is that is manufactured or made or whatever by an atheist or by a Satanist or something like that. And and go, wow, you know, that is a beautiful piece of atheistic art. That's a beautiful piece of that's a beautiful piece of Satanistic music. You know, I, you, know you just don't see these people making things of beauty and i think that that's one of the one of the ways that you know it really kind of it really kind of reinforces what chesterton says is that the good gravitate towards the incarnate well the evil gravitates towards nothing which i think just you know reinforces what what chesterton says one of my favorite parts of scripture of course everybody always says they have their favorite, their favorite part of scripture and i guess before too long i end up saying i like all of it but there's a, there's a piece here from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter four, verse eight, okay? And again, you know, this really kind of dovetails with what what, um, Chesterton says about the good gravitating towards the incarnate. And it's the very end of of the letter to the Philippians and at the end of of St. Paul's, all of St. Paul's letters, he kind of gives some parting words of advice and everything. And so he says here, finally, beloved, um, Philippians chapter four, verse eight, if you want to look it up, verses eight through nine. Finally, beloved, whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay? That's just chapter 4, verse 8. I'm going to go through that again. And listen to these words that St. Paul uses. He says, Finally, beloved, whatever is true... And see, again, as Christians, we're going to have a common consensus of kind of what true is, right? We're not going to be like the, you know, the atheistic crowd that says, well, you know, true for you, true for me, you know, to quote the infamous Pontius Pilate, what is truth? Whatever is honorable. Well, again, in our times, who would who would dare to say that such and such a thing is honorable? Um, I remember a while back old Nancy Pelosi, you know, the, the senator from San Francisco, um, she was commenting on the on the wall that President Trump wants to build for the southern border. Um, I'm not going to argue for or against the wall here, but I thought what was interesting was that Pelosi gets up and says, the wall is immoral. And I'm going, you know, here's a gal who believes in sodomy. She believes in ripping unborn babies out of their mother's wombs. You know, w- what is her basis for telling us what moral is? You know, building the wall may be immoral, but – Based on, on what moral code, Ms. Pelosi, you know, what are you, you going to base that on? Or if, if building the wall is moral, again, how does someone who supports gay marriage and sodomy and abortion and stuff, if the building the wall is immoral, um, how, to, how does someone like you tell us, you know, start lecturing us on morality? I don't get that. But St. Paul says whatever is honorable Okay, And so we have to have a common consensus of what honorable is. Whatever is just, that is, say, whatever is fair, whatever is, you know, is, is you know, not just legal, but you know, laws that are, that are just laws that make sense. Whatever is pure. Um, purity is something we don't think about anymore. Whatever is pleasing, whatever is, whatever is beautiful, whatever is commendable, whatever you know, people do things when we say, hey, you did a good thing there. That's a good job. Keep doing that. If there is any excellence, in other words, we have to excel. You know, this is something that um, has that, um, really has been sort of you know blown out of the water by the cult of self-esteem. You know, it used to be. If you had some, you know, individual, usually a kid, that you know they they couldn't, you know, do a layup or they couldn't shag a fly ball or they couldn't figure out how to, you know, factor their algebra equations or something like that, and to what we would do is we would say, okay, well, we're going to work with you extra hard on this until you master this skill, and then once they could do it, once they mastered that skill, they would feel pretty good about themselves, you know, the old self-esteem, right? But the way you achieve self-esteem was by first achieving excellence. Now, what do we say? We go, well, you know, you tried, here's your trophy. You tried, that's all that's important. You know, you, you tried. we want you to have high self-esteem. So even though you failed miserably, you tried and so, you know, you tried, so you succeeded. And, and, and but St. Paul says, no, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. And so, again, I think we look at those things. We look at those great words that St. Paul throws out at us here when he talks about true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. You know, think about these things. These are the things to think about because they gravitate ultimately towards incarnation. They become real. They become things that we can, that we can touch and that we can experience and so on. And I think, again, when you, when you look at what St. Paul is saying and you compare that to what the atheists have to offer us, I think any reasonable person would say, sorry, atheists, you know, you don't really bring anything to the table here. You know, you don't really bring anything to me that I haven't already got as a believer. And in fact, you know, again, this is one of the things that um, one of these sophistries that gets thrown around and everybody thinks that it's great wisdom. You know, when people say, oh, you know, all religion does is bring war into the world and, you know, all the great conflicts of the world are all because of religion. Well, that's not true. Um, when you look at the great conflicts of the world, especially from the 19th and 20th centuries, they've been brought about because of atheists. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong—you know—the disasters in communist Russia, communist China, um, in Southeast Asia, and the Cambodian killing fields. You know the Khmer Rouge, and you know all these people—they were all atheists. You know, and, and you know, atheism has has brought more misery and more suffering into the world than anything has. And even when atheism is trying to do something good, I mean they might put up a university they might put up a hospital or something like that but even so you know what good comes out of it you know i, I will pit the you know people you know the, the again one of the things that old um What's his name here that Anderson Anders talks about in his I mean, his critique against, against Christianity is when he talks about how you know how he went through the history of Christianity and so on. And he talks about, oh, you know, the scandals and all these kind of things. You know, the, the, the history, the in-depth history, the scandals, the teachings and practices of my brand of Christianity. Well, you know, the thing of it is wherever you're going to have human beings, you're going to have imperfections, you're going to have scandals. The difference is, is that in Christian land, When a Christian gets caught red-handed doing something wrong, they kind of have to go, well, you know, you got me because my belief system doesn't back that up. But when you catch an atheist doing something wrong, they go, so? And so I think that, you know, that's kind of the the difference we have to look at. And so, I think that one of the things that I would kind of challenge you to is look and see, just look around and see if you can't find more examples in your life. Because once you develop an eye for it, you're going to see it all over the place of the good gravitating towards and moving towards the incarnate. And I think that um, when you, you everything from family life to beautiful music to beautiful art and things like that, you know, the good has gravitated towards the incarnate. On the other hand, when you look at, at the evil um, that is proposed primarily by the atheists and so on, they really don't have a whole lot to show for their efforts. Again, I, do, I have ne- yet to see any you know, beautiful piece of art that came about because of atheism. Again, there may be an atheist who's a good artist, but I, I don't see his or her atheism you know, generating beauty You may have an atheist who's a brilliant musician. Well, good for him or her. But I don't see any beautiful music being composed and created by this person because of their atheism. I do see, you know, know, talented people creating beautiful things because of their Christian faith, because they're taking good and making it become incarnate. And I think that those things are really kind of worth looking at and, and studying a little bit. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword, and also the One Body program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio, and those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our donate button, because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.